Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Spear of the Nation, Nelson Mandela and the ANC. In various movies, writings, and graduation speeches over the past few decades, Nelson Mandela has been credited with these stirring words on what it means to believe in yourself. Our greatest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our greatest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. A great quote, but sadly he never said it. The quotation actually comes from a 1992 book called A Return to Love by the American self-help guru and sometimes presidential hopeful Marianne Williamson. The attribution is nonetheless in a certain sense apt, since Mandela is of course famous for fighting on behalf of the powerless, using the sort of weapon his opponents and indeed persecutors underestimated ideas. And from the most abject of positions as a political prisoner, he went on to do something Williamson did not. He became the president of his country. You'll hardly be surprised that we are including Mandela in this podcast series, but in addition to avoiding putting others' words into his mouth, we will also be careful to put him in the larger context of Black South African political thought in the 20th century. In particular, we will show how he fits into the tradition of thinkers who played leadership roles in the African National Congress, or ANC, the political party that has governed South Africa continuously since the election in 1994 that made Mandela the country's first Black president. But given our broader focus on the ANC, we need to go back much earlier to the century's beginning. The first person we will meet there is, in fact, someone we've encountered before, albeit very briefly. In episode 78, we mentioned a friend that Alain Locke made while studying at Oxford, a man from South Africa, by the name of Pixley Ka Isake Seme. Prior to his time at Oxford, the distinguished Seme had studied in the United States at Columbia University. In April of 1906, Seme participated in a public speaking competition at Columbia. His winning speech has come to be recognized as an important expression of an idea that would eventually be distinctively associated with South Africa, that of an African Renaissance. Explaining the speech's title, The Regeneration of Africa, Seme defines regeneration as entrance into a new life, embracing the diverse phases of a higher complex existence. One thing that seems particularly complex about the higher existence that Seme describes is its relationship to European culture. Seme repeatedly celebrates education as part of the process of regeneration and says of the African, having learned that knowledge is power, he is educating his children. You find them in Edinburgh and Cambridge in the great schools of Germany. These return to their country like arrows to drive darkness from the land. At moments like these, African regeneration seems to mean that Africans should master the complexities of Western modernity. At other times, though, Seme insists upon African difference, claiming that regeneration means that a new and unique civilization is soon to be added to the world. It hardly needs saying that these competing tendencies in Seme's speech anticipated tensions that would be explored by thinkers throughout the rest of the 20th century. After his time studying at Columbia and then at Oxford, Seme returned to South Africa as a lawyer. He arrived in 1910, the year of the founding of the Union of South Africa. This is the birth of South Africa as we know it, the unification of four British colonies, the Cape Colony, the Colony of Natal, and the Transvaal and Orange River colonies. 
Those last two had not long before been independent republics, but their defeat by the British in the Second Boer War brought to an end the long-running battle for supremacy in the region between the British and the Dutch-descended Afrikaners, or Boers. The Union of South Africa was formed as a self-governing dominion within the British Empire, similar to Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. It was also, from its inception, a country in which the black majority and other non-white groups lacked the rights, freedoms, and opportunities accorded to the white minority. In response to this, Same called for a new form of unity among black people. He organized a gathering of leading figures in Bloemfontein in January of 1912, and the product of this meeting was the South African National Native Congress, renamed the African National Congress about a decade later. The close link between the birth of South Africa as a distinct country and the formation of the ANC is evident from these remarks that Seme made at the founding gathering. The white people of this country have formed what is known as the Union of South Africa, a union in which we have no voice in making the laws and no part of their administration. We have called you therefore to this conference so that we can, together, devise ways and means of forming our national union for the purpose of creating national unity and defending our rights and privileges. Seme is not the only founding father of the ANC who has been recognized as a thinker of note. Elected as the Secretary General of the organization was Solomon Platier, a distinguished journalist who would also eventually go on to become the first black South African to publish a novel in English. As an important African intellectual influenced by and connected with W.E.B. Du Bois, Platier fits naturally into the story of Africana philosophy. It has been argued that some of his newspaper writing in Setswana shows South African engagement with Du Bois's classic work, The Souls of Black Folk, in 1904, the very year after the book's publication in 1903. Du Bois's influence is certainly evident in Platia's 1916 book, Native Life in South Africa, which aimed to expose the injustice of the Native Lands Act of 1913, a key piece of legislation in the segregation of South Africa. The law reserved less than a tenth of the Union's land for possible purchase by Black South Africans, thus reserving most of the rest for white South Africans. As Tsitsi Elajaji has pointed out, Platia's book not only includes a quotation from The Souls of Black Folk in its introduction, but also reads as if Du Bois's book provided the template for both the montage-like genre and the political purpose of Platia's work. Platia would go on to meet his hero as a participant in more than one of the Pan-African Congresses organized by Du Bois, beginning with the first one in 1919. As it turns out, he was also warmly received and supported by Du Bois's rival, Garvey, while visiting Canada and the United States in 1921. Platia shared the stage with Garvey in both Toronto and New York. But it was neither Platia nor the primary organizing force behind the ANC's formation, Seme, who became its first president. It was rather John L. Dubé, who had earned with some justice a reputation as South Africa's Booker T. Washington, Du Bois's older rival. Along with his wife, Nokutela Dubé, John Dubé had visited Tuskegee and met with Washington back in 1897. Inspired by this, in 1901, the Dubes founded the Zulu Christian Industrial School, also known as the Olange Institute, and obviously patterned after Tuskegee. In 1912, having been elected president in absentia, as he'd been unable to attend the conference in person, Dubé wrote a letter accepting the role and expressing his understanding of its importance. In doing so, he made clear just how much Washington meant to him philosophically. Dubé wrote, You have asked me to lead and perchance you would ask me now how I intend to do so. I will show you my frame of mind and my ideal in two words. I take for my motto, festina lente, 
hasten slowly. And for my patron saint, I select that great and edifying man, Booker Washington. Dubé proclaims here a commitment to Washington's conservatism, or as Dubé also puts it, the necessity of moving cautiously, of making progress prudently. That's not all, though. Dubé also justifies his choice of Washington as his guiding star by arguing that Washington's focus on education represents the shortest and best way to attain the ultimate goal of mental, moral, material, social, and political betterment. Despite this holistic identification with Washington's project, though, Dubé also admits the need for struggle, writing, While I believe that in education my race will find its greatest earthly blessing, I am forced to avow that at this present juncture of the reformation of the South African Commonwealth, it has a still more pressing need, the need of political vigilance and guidance, of political emancipation and rights. We therefore find at the very birth of the ANC an attempt to draw from both sides of the debate between Washington and Du Bois. Another notable development in the ANC's history came in the late 1920s with the leadership of its fourth president, Josiah Goumede, who visited the USSR and became very open to collaboration with South Africa's Communist Party. This leftward turn caused a split in the ANC, and Goumede was eventually forced out of his role. He was replaced by none other than the original founding father, Seme. Unfortunately, Seme's time as president of the ANC has been described by one scholar who is otherwise quite admiring of his life and work as nothing short of catastrophic. Having been brought to power by the party's conservative element, Seme now led the party in a manner so conservative and ineffectual in its forms of protest as to render the party somewhat irrelevant, and so autocratic and divisive in style that the party's membership naturally shrank. Gradually, over the course of the late 1930s and early 1940s, the party regained its footing, overcoming problems of disorganization and growing in influence. It is during this time that Mandela steps into the picture, so let us introduce him, even if, more than most figures in our series, he would seem to need no introduction. He was born in 1918, in what is now the Eastern Cape, a member of the Thembu people who form a subcategory within the larger, more well-known ethnic group, the Xhosa, the X in this people's name is not actually supposed to be a K, but rather a click sound, something like Osa. We've not focused much on the ethnic backgrounds of those we've mentioned so far, but even putting aside the fact that Mandela's fame might seem to warrant greater attention to detail, there is a biographical reason to mention his background. He came of age living at the Tembu royal court, because Mandela's father died while he was still a child, and the regent, or acting king, decided to become Mandela's guardian. Thus, as Mandela notes repeatedly in his autobiography, Long Walk to Freedom, he pursued education under the assumption that his destiny was to serve the royal court as a counselor to the future king. His journey from this original attachment to traditional royalty in Thembuland to becoming a leading figure on the world stage was complex, featuring shifting and evolving thoughts on African identity, cross-racial solidarity, and the way forward for humankind. In 1941, Mandela and his brother went to live in Johannesburg. They fled to that largest of South African cities to avoid having to go through with marriages the regent, their guardian, had arranged for them. This fateful decision put Mandela in the right place to discover his passion and talent for political organizing. He began attending ANC meetings, and in a foreshadowing of the famous stand taken by Rosa Parks, participated in a successful bus boycott protesting a rise in fare. Key to his politicization, was the influence of his friend Walter Sisulu, another major figure in the intellectual history of the South African struggle. Sisulu was born in 1912, the year the ANC was founded, 
to a Hosa mother and a white father, long before a similar combination produced that other great son of South Africa, Trevor Noah. By the time Mandela met Sisulu, the latter had already dedicated himself to the ANC, viewing it, as Mandela puts it in Long Walk to Freedom, as the repository of black hopes and aspirations. Another young man whom Sisulu did much to politicize was Oliver Tambo, who was born in 1917 and was thus close in age to Mandela. In fact, Tambo and Mandela knew each other from before Johannesburg, as both had been students at the University of Fort Hare, the only institution of higher learning serving Africans at that time. If it had been founded by Dubé, whose motto was hasten slowly, it would presumably have been called University of Fort Tortoise. It is putting things lightly to say that these three men, Sisulu, Tambo, and Mandela, greatly shaped the history of South Africa from the 1940s onwards, and each of them lived at least until the 1990s, thus getting to see some of the societal transformation they worked to achieve. To appreciate their philosophical trajectories, throughout the decades in between the 1940s and 1990s, though, we must highlight the impact upon these three of the thought of Anton Lembede, who died at the age of 33 in 1947, and thus, unlike them, did not get to see what happened beyond that decade. It's no stretch to refer to Lembede as a philosopher, as he was granted a master's degree in philosophy by the University of South Africa for his thesis, The Conception of God as Expounded by, or as it emerges from, the writings of great philosophers, from Descartes to the present day. The thesis bears little trace, however, of the system of thought he sought to impart to Sisulu, Tambo, and Mandela, which he called Africanism. As Mandela summarizes it in Long Walk to Freedom, there are at least three key points. That Africa was a black man's continent, and it was up to Africans to reassert and reclaim what was rightfully theirs. That the black inferiority complex, which involves the worship and idolization of the West and their ideas, is the greatest barrier to liberation, and that blacks had to improve their own self-image before they could initiate successful mass action. Mandela credits Lembede with helping him to see how he had uncritically accepted the paternalistic messages of British colonialism and portrayals of white people as progressive and civilized. Mandela writes, Like Lembede, I came to see the antidote as militant African nationalism. In order to push the ANC in the direction of more radical protest, Mandela and other like-minded members created a Youth League, which was formally launched in 1944. Nabede was elected its president, Tambo its secretary, and Sisulu its treasurer. Mandela did not yet take a leadership role, but he is still generally thought to have contributed in some way to the Youth League's manifesto. Even if he did not, it is reflective of the position he felt most comfortable defending at this point. The manifesto is a remarkable document seemingly displaying the influence of negritude and other black cultural nationalist movements. We see this in its description of racial conflict as involving different ways of knowing and understanding the universe. The Youth League asserts that the white man regards the universe as a gigantic machine hurtling through time and space to its final destruction, viewing individuals in the universe as tiny organisms with private lives that lead to private deaths, and taking as the measures of value, personal power, success, and fame. By contrast, the African regards the universe as one composite whole, an organic entity, progressively driving towards greater harmony and unity, whose individual parts exist merely as interdependent aspects of one whole, realizing their fullest life in the corporate life, where communal contentment is the absolute measure of values. What Mandela recalls about the manifesto in his autobiography is its attack on the principle of trusteeship, 
the idea that the white government could be viewed as operating on behalf of the best interests of all. The manifesto strongly rejects the notion that South Africa's government has any interest in placing the African on the road to civilized life. Referring especially to the hated pass laws, which controlled the movement of black people by requiring them to carry a pass while in white areas, the manifesto boldly states that trusteeship has made every African a criminal still out of prison. There is then an interesting mix of cultural and political ideas here. As the 1940s wore on, the Africanist orientation on display in the manifesto, derived from Lembede, became increasingly controversial, not just in the ANC as a whole, but in the Youth League. After Lembede's unexpected death from an unknown cause in 1947, he was succeeded as president of the Youth League by Peter Mdak, who Mandela describes in Long Walk to Freedom as more moderate in his nationalism than Lembede. He describes Mdan as follows. He hated white oppression and white domination, not white people themselves. It should be evident that this description reflects Mandela's eventual turn against what he took to be excesses of racial consciousness in Lembede's position. But he admits that at the time, Mda was pulling the league in a direction Mandela found uncomfortable. For example, Mandela at that time opposed any joint action with communists on the grounds that white influence upon the ANC must be avoided at all costs. There's a clear echo here of the famous Garveyite distrust of communists, although the complexities of ideological alignment in the South African struggle are exemplified by the fact that Gumede, who first led the ANC toward collaboration with communists back in the late 1920s, is also known to have been a supporter of Garvey's. Another important question was whether joint action should be pursued with non-white groups other than black people. This question came to the fore in 1951, at which point Mandela himself had become president of the Youth League. This was a time at which the Youth League had become perhaps the most powerful part of the ANC, after masterminding the removal of the president who guided the organization through the 1940s, Alfred Zuma, whose steady hand was nevertheless too conservative for the Youth League. In the wake of his removal, the ANC began to engage in more radical forms of direct action, boycotts, strikes, civil disobedience, non-cooperation, and so on. In 1951, Mandela found himself disagreeing with his friend and mentor Sisulu about whether black South Africans should be working together with Indian and colored South Africans, that is, those South Africans with roots in India, or in the kinds of historical mixing that produced the distinctive colored South African experience. Sisulu argued that the Indians, coloreds, and Africans were inextricably bound together, while Mandela maintained that their struggles were and should remain separate. It was put to a vote, however, at a meeting of the ANC's National Executive Committee, and Mandela gracefully accepted the results, which went against his preferred policy of separate action. This moment of acceptance foretold a complete change in Mandela's perspective on racial difference. One key to this change was the weakening of Mandela's anti-communism, thanks in part to all-night debates he was having with Moses Kotane, who managed to secure leadership roles in both the ANC and the Communist Party. Discussions with Kotane and others inspired Mandela to attempt serious study of the classics of Marxism. The first thing that attracted him will, perhaps ironically, remind us of that famous non-Marxist African socialist, Julius Nyerere. I found myself strongly drawn to the idea of a classless society, which to my mind was similar to traditional African culture, where life was shared and communal. This aspect of his attraction to Marxism reflects the centrality of his commitment to African identity but he also depicts his reading of Marxist philosophical works as reshaping his view of race. He writes, 
Dialectical materialism seemed to offer both a searchlight illuminating the dark night of racial oppression and a tool that could be used to end it. It helped me to see the situation other than through the prism of black and white relations, for if our struggle was to succeed, we had to transcend black and white. Mandela never publicly admitted to joining the Communist Party, but the evidence suggests that he did. Related to, but distinct from, Mandela's changing thoughts on race and communism would be his changing thoughts on violence. The ANC was led for most of the 1950s and 1960s by Chief Albert Luthuli, well known for his Christian commitment to Gandhian nonviolence, much like Martin Luther King Jr. It was this commitment that resulted in Luthuli becoming the first African-born recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize in December of 1961. Earlier that very year, though, Mandela successfully pushed the ANC in another direction. He pressed for the use of tactical violence. The compromise, accepted even by Chief Luthuli, was that the ANC would remain officially nonviolent, but Mandela would be allowed to create a separate military organization. He and others thus created the Umkonto Re Sizwe, or Spear of the Nation, also known as the MK. But what counts as justifiable violence? Mandela reflects on this in his most famous speech, a 1964 statement made in court and commonly known as the I am prepared to die speech. He distinguishes between four forms of violence, sabotage, guerrilla warfare, terrorism, and open revolution. The MK's initial commitment was to exhaust the first of these options before taking any other decision. As Mandela explains, the option of sabotaging power plants, telephone communications, railways, and so on, best reflected the organization's prior preference for nonviolence, since it did not involve loss of life and it offered the best hope for future race relations. Members of the MK were committed at this stage to refrain from doing anything that would kill or even injure. Yet the very creation of the MK was based on a recognition that civil war between black and white South Africans was a real possibility. As Mandela puts it, we did not want to be committed to civil war, but we wanted to be ready if it became inevitable. Mandela's account of the history of the MK furthermore includes their move towards preparing for the eventuality of guerrilla warfare. At all times, however, Mandela distances himself and the MK from terrorism, by which he presumably means direct violent attacks on civilians. He treats terrorism on the part of Africans as an outcome that can be expected if oppression continues and other less severe and more carefully planned forms of violence are not put in its place. In his view, the use of terrorism would lead to an intensity of bitterness and hostility between the various races of this country, which is not produced even by war. Mandela arguably had a habit of expressing his most important and interesting ideas while in court, as is fitting for a lawyer. That is what Mandela had worked hard in Johannesburg to become, and along with Tambo, he had managed to open the only African-run law firm in the country. In 1962, on trial for charges of inciting workers to strike and leaving the country without valid travel documents, he chose to represent himself and to make a rather dramatic statement by means of an unusual application. Mandela applied for the judge to recuse himself, that is, to refrain from hearing the case, on the grounds that to do so would be to compromise the trial's fairness. This is the kind of thing that would be obviously appropriate for a judge to do in certain situations. For example, if one of the parties in a civil dispute were a close family member. What then was the problem of bias making the judge ineligible in Mandela's trial? Well, the judge was white. As Mandela states in Long Walk to Freedom, his remarks during this portion of the trial sought to make it clear that he intended to put the state on trial. 
In fact, it would do no good for this particular white judge to recuse himself, because all the judges were white. But this was no objection to his application. To the contrary, it was part of his point. Mandela played up the irony here by assuring the judge that this was no personal attack. I hold your worship in high esteem, and I do not for one single moment doubt your sense of fairness and justice. Nevertheless, Mandela argued, a political trial like this one involved a clash of the aspirations of the African people and those of the whites. Under such circumstances, to have a white judicial officer presiding, however high his esteem and however strong his sense of fairness and justice, is to make whites judges in their own case. Mandela's remarks seek to remove the mask of apparent fairness from South Africa's judicial system. He admits that an African who is charged in a court of law enjoys on the surface the same rights and privileges as an accused who is white. He is governed by the same rules of procedure and evidence as applied to a white accused. But this does not mean that Africans enjoy equality before the law. Without the right to participate in the making of the laws by which they are governed, or the right to administer justice as a judge, there can be no equality before the law for Africans. Or, as Mandela pithily puts it, the white man makes all the laws, he drags us before his courts and accuses us, and he sits in judgment over us. Thus, the first of the two reasons that Mandela gives for requesting the judge's recusal is his reasonable suspicion that, under the circumstances, he will not get a fair trial. Here is the second reason, in his own words, I consider myself neither legally nor morally bound to obey laws made by a parliament in which I have no representation. Mandela here connects the force of law, its claim on us, with the extent to which we are acknowledged as among those people whose collective will serves as the foundation of governmental authority. Expanding on the moral aspect of the claim, Mandela boldly states, Africans and whites in this country have no common standard of fairness, morality, and ethics. He points to the track record of white treatment of Africans as evidence for this claim. The implication could not be more stark. The apartness of South African society is so complete as to put black and white people into different moral worlds. So we don't need that Marianne Williamson quote to establish Mandela's track record as a fascinating thinker. As for his track record as an international icon, this grew exponentially after the 1964 Rivonia trial, which ended with a conviction for sabotage and resulted in his imprisonment for 27 years. During this time, he served the world as an important symbol of the global struggle for human freedom and equality. We should be careful not to forget, though, about his friend Sisulu, who was also convicted at the same trial and served roughly the same sentence. Nor should we overlook Tambo, who took over the presidency of the ANC after the death of Chief Luthuli in 1967 and held the job, mostly in exile in Zambia and England, until Mandela himself was able to step into it in 1991. But while remembering all these men, we should also acknowledge the important contributions of women leaders associated with the ANC. Early on, mere association of some sort was all that was possible, as full membership was limited to men. Even so, in 1918, Charlotte Makseke organized the Bantu Women's League as an associated organization, and after women were granted membership in 1943, the first leader of the ANC's Women's League was Mady Hall Zuma, the African-American wife of Alfred Zuma. And speaking of wives, we would not want to overlook the contribution of women like Albertina Sisulu, Adelaide Tambo, and of course, Winnie Mandela. As we saw with the Black Power and Black Panther movements in America, political movements aiming at racial liberation during this era sometimes failed to bring women into the fold, but the women did not wait for an invitation. 
Speaking of America, you'll by now be used to the way we're moving back and forth across the Atlantic in this series of episodes on the 20th century, so you'll hardly be surprised to learn that we are going back to America next time, but you might be surprised that our destination is South America. We'll be returning for the first time since episode 60 to Brazil. There we will meet another activist who, like Mandela, rose to political office. Abdias do Nascimento was not only a politician, but also a playwright, a Pan-Africanist, a professor, and no doubt some other things that begin with P. For instance, a philosopher presented in a podcast, or at least he will be once we've released the next episode of The History of Africana Philosophy. <laughs>